Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of ESEC Lending Insights. I'm Brooke Gilman, and I'm coming back to you with the second half installment of the conversation that I recently had with Mark Faulkner, co-founder of Credit Benchmark, and Andy Dyson, CEO of ISLA. The conversation we had was around the Basel 3.1 framework and the implementation across many global jurisdictions and the effects that it will have on the banks and how that will then translate into our securities financing marketplace. We were very focused on the impact ultimately to the beneficial owners and the process to engage and educate beneficial owners in this conversation as many of the market jurisdictions are either in implementation phase or in earlier proposal phases with implementations to follow in subsequent years. The Basel framework is very complex. There's a lot of detail to it, and there's a lot of variations of similar themes. So it's not a straightforward conversation, which is why we spent a good solid hour on it. We probably could have spent many more ultimately, but what we've done here is we've segmented our conversation into two separate podcasts. So if you haven't already listened to the first episode, I would highly encourage that you take a pause, do not pass go, don't collect the $200, go back and listen to it and listen to this conversation for the conclusion. With that said, though, I do expect this topic will continue to have a lot of dialogue and discussion in the industry in the coming months, both because of the point at which we're in in the U.S. market where we're under proposed rules, waiting pending final rules, ultimately. There is still a lot of clarity to be sought as well as detail to be understood. So don't worry. This is probably the first of many educational opportunities on the topic. If you have any questions, though, in the meantime, please don't hesitate to reach out. And with that, I will leave it to Mark and Andy to get us going again. Just just listening to us, and I was thinking, put myself in the place of being a large beneficial owner. I deal with lots of different banks. Part of the problem is that quite a lot of banks turn up and say, how are you doing with Bazaar? And they'll say, oh, it's not really a problem for us. We're well capitalized. It's all great. Don't worry. It's weaker banks that have the issue. And then they'll meet with all of their banks and not one of them said it's an issue because it's like, I have a friend who has the issue, not me. I don't have the issue. And it's this sort of disingenuity. They're not misleading. They're just pretending there's some sense of bravado about it not being something that they fess up to having the problem. And that makes it difficult for the beneficial owners. And I really welcome the fact that some agents and, you know, Mm. Citibank took major action in the securities lending indemnification market. State Street have been beguilingly straightforward and honest. And, you know, I think that's been a positive thing saying, yeah, this is an issue for us. We think this is crazy and we want to work with people who want to work with us to find a solution. That's helpful because if every borrower in the world says it's not a big issue. The other day I started to read about the profitability of Canadian banks declining. We need to get out. I know. Sorry. It's it's a very sad. (laughs) It's pretty sad, isn't it? But the point I'm making is, even the Canadian bank profitability is, is under strength. They are already under Basel implementation. They will care about this. Everybody should care about this. And actually, it doesn't really matter about whether it's hugely expensive or not. Is it not incumbent upon any business person as they manage a business to tune it up, optimize it, and make it as efficient as possible? Why would you leave knowingly capital on the floor? 
Yeah, and I think just to echo your point about someone else has got the problem, not us. I was fortunate to speak to two or three very large hedge funds quite recently. And I said, so where do you think about Baal? And they went, so what's that mean? And I thought, who do you think is going to pick up the bloody bill? It's them. Well, no, I thought about this for a while. Their primes are going to insulate them from this. Their primes aren't going to jeopardize their business with their biggest client because of something that's quite annoying like this. The primes will do everything they can to protect their clients. No, 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 no. It's it's Possibly (laughs) not, actually, because I think that for years, since 2007-8, sophisticated prime brokers and their client relationship people talking to their largest prime broker customers have had a capital balance sheet allocation resources conversation with them. And they have a very grown up way of looking at it. But that hasn't been the case on the supply okay. side of the buy side, if that makes any yeah, sense, yeah, as yeah. opposed to the demand side of the buy side. So they, they're ready for those kinds of conversations. The difference here is that the supply side of the buy side, the long only, more traditional asset long investors, less leveraged investors, haven't been treated the same way as the prime brokers treat their prime brokers. So I'm not sure it's about insulation. They just told them about the birds and the bees a long time ago. They know what the reality is. And that's part of why I wanted to have this conversation, because I think that this is a conversation and I appreciate that client base that I deal with is going to differ than that of the big global custodian banks, the more traditional agents in the market. They just have a numbers game that is going to be very different in terms of involvement in the product and level of sophistication in the product. But those beneficial owners that I spend a lot of time with, this is absolutely becoming a fairly common topic of conversation. I would say it's early. Like we are absolutely on the first level book, not the advanced. And there's a lot of confusion. I will admit, because frankly, this is a detailed multifaceted topic. Just like you were saying, when I asked you the ratings question, well, yes, if you get the rating in the jurisdiction of the bank that is regulated in that jurisdiction, I mean, it's like those sorts of things cause the pain points. But I do think that this is a conversation that they're starting to think about because at least in the situations that I interface with, we are having a lot of conversations with the banks and talking about different either trade structures or routes to accomplish similar transactions, to get to the same end place in terms of opportunity and trade opportunity, but done in what is hopefully a more efficient capital facilitated way for them. The underlying clients care about this and want to know what else they can do about it. I've also seen in the past year, I know two major US pension plans that have now never had ratings, never had reason to be rating. They do not issue debt they now have sought ratings. And they've sought it for arguably some different reasons. And some of them are related to this. I think some also related to the activity in the peer-to-peer space too. But what it tells you is, is that I think that there's an appetite on the buy side to also see what they can do to solve these problems. They're starting to recognize that this will be impactful to their program and their activity. And they care about a lot of these financing trades because they're now starting to utilize securities finance for more than just that plain vanilla way of, oh, let's just earn a little bit of extra, you know, rental fee on the assets that we own long. They're starting to use it for financing and other needs within their organization. And they don't want a lot of these trades to completely disappear on them. I think you're absolutely right. But I think it's quite good news. It's very reassuring to hear that the topic is coming up more and more. And there is no hurry. The implementation phasing in transition periods 
are kind of 18 months, two years. So, you know, January the 1st, 2025 and longer. For those jurisdictions that have already finalized rulings yeah. and yes. have and announced implementations. Are, are ratcheting in over time with a slope. So nothing is going to happen on the 1st of January 2024 that's going to be revolutionary for anybody driven also, by Basel. So yeah. there is an opportunity to move. I love complexity. I really do. And I find this fascinating. Sorry. But I think it's really important that the beneficial owners and their fund managers realize this is a capital markets yeah. problem, that actually 50% of the problem for the banks could be foreign exchange derivatives and hedging, and 50% of it could be securities finance. And I don't know if it's helpful to get three or four conversations going, or whether mm -hmm. we lead with securities lending, because to some and to many, it's optional. Mm. it's gravy, it's additional revenue. Telefund manager, you can't do foreign exchange and you can't do long-dated derivatives and hedging without a capital cost. You've got their attention. Tell them securities lending's got even more technical and complicated. They may not give a damn. I think yeah. that's a really interesting and edge. You're right, Mark. What we're seeing is we in securities finance and securities lending have been a bit fixated on this and we're probably early adopters of the challenge. Okay? Yeah. And even our early adoption is still at quite an early phase. I think it's yet to resonate fully with certain areas of the buy side because they're already thinking, I'll leave that alone for a bit because I've got T plus one coming up next. So got to figure that out. But the other thing I would say to the listeners is, to your point, Mark, there's no immediate rush because the stage is now set. What we now know yes. in Europe, UK and the US, we sort of know what we're going to get in terms of the regulatory environment. Mm -hmm. Very little room for any changes or wiggle room. So the stage is set. We know what it's going to look like. So what we've now got to do with our community and our stakeholders is begin to figure out, okay, how do we deal with that? What are the options? Yeah. And I firmly believe all the things we've talked about will come into a toolbox. I think you're right, because actually there was a danger of appearing like, because some of it seems so bonkers that yeah. you feel like chicken little. One day, maybe they're going to do this daft thing. And you think, call me back when you know if they're going to do it. The problem is now we know. Yeah. And I think the audience is starting to pay attention. That's marvelous feedback that we're hearing from you, Brooke. But also they need to work out the extent to which they want to engage with solutions, legal solutions, synthetic derivative solutions, CCP solutions, rating solutions. There is no one solution. Yeah. Okay. And for certain types of jurisdictions, certain types of fund, a CCP may be the winning combination. Pledge may not work for some jurisdictions or certain types of funds. A rating may be a greater solution also, for some and not others. A, it's a toolkit. Also, you'll find if you're a buy-side client facing credentially regulated entities, their binding constraints will change over time. So what was important to them this month may not be as important to the next month. So they might say to you, this month, we're happy to do it on synthetic. Next month, can we put it through CCP? Because we're full up on synthetic, for example. But, so I think, but, but you yeah. have to prepare very hard yeah. to be able to have those different options available at your fingertips. The other thing is for many large asset managers based out of America, the gold standard for capital, tell anybody who listened, has been and is America. They've done an amazing job in protecting the banking and financial environment. One could say they had to, clearly, but they've done an amazing job. So the ramifications, the change in the benefit for American banks that dominate some of the prime broker capacity and are the biggest counterparts for many 
asset managers, pension plans in the capital markets. The ramifications are less. That's what I was wondering. I wanted to ask to the extent that there are winners and losers, and I know no one probably is a true winner, but like on a relative basis of whose business is being more impacted or less impacted, you're saying U.S. banks already kind of took a lot of the patent suffering previously. Very much Maybe there's less new patent suffering. Let me give you an example. A U.S. mutual fund that has international assets and has Swiss, European, UK, Canadian counterparts, and American counterparts. It's a US mutual fund. It's a corporate. It's 100% RWA for the Americans. That's it. But it has been already. It has been, and that's that's it. Whereas for the Europeans, the Canadians, and everybody else, the Swiss and the UK, depending on their internal models, that same mutual fund could be at 20% or 50%. That's going to go up to 100% if it's not going to be rated with an output floor of 60. So it's going to go to 65% or 72.5% over the course of the next two years. The losers so, are the European, Swiss, UK, Canadian. Right. And, and, you, and, from the Americans the US, and, and from the US mutual funds perspective, if they're an active lender and they plan to continue to be an active lender, but they also plan to make or don't have the ability from a regulatory and what they're allowed to do. They don't plan to make any of the changes we talked about. Mm. They're not going to be able to get a rating. They're not going to be able to do pledge or CCPs or TRS or whatnot. Their program will naturally probably close in on them a bit. They probably will still be viable in the specials game. Yes. Yes. Very they're gonna, so. they're and have that's a, a really important, but that's volume. a very important yeah. point. Capital is not the binding constraint when you're dealing with a white hot stock. No. It doesn't matter. Right. Right. To the stock. right. So I think that's a really important. Yeah. Agreed. So in that example, though, U.S. mutual funds are going to see a lot less GC. Not that they see a ton of GC today in some instances. It's not necessarily the game that U.S. mutual funds are in by and large, but some may be more than others. But they're going to see less GC and they're probably going to see their borrower concentration change and maybe more of a focus on U.S. banks. To the extent that the U.S. banks continue to want to borrow from that kind of counterpart, everybody is going to be chasing supply that is held, that is special, and that is held by rated sovereigns. Rated sovereigns? Because my understanding was is that true sovereigns don't have the same implication on the RWA with ratings. Is that not... Um, or is that a question mark when, when is a sovereign not a sovereign when it's maybe not guaranteed maybe when say, it won't share information okay. so okay. in america credit worthiness seems to be less important than clarity of classification of the fund is it a sovereign is it oecd right. is it a public sector enterprise so mark's quite right that if this plays out as it might you'll end up with more borrowers chasing a very specific type of supply. Yes. It's uh-huh. probably supply coming from lower RW. A supply from a specific type of lender. Yes. 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 I'm throwing this out to you both, asking your best guess. How many entities do you think there are globally that truly might fall into the category of not having the negative capital charges without having a rating? Very few. Is tens, it sort of tens, I can count on my hands? Tens, tens yeah. yes. And part of the challenge for all people trying to deal with some of the more secretive sovereign wealth or pension plans is their reluctance to shed data. Uh-huh. I'm minded of an Asian fund, a sovereign wealth fund that's very high profile in the capital markets, where it treats all of its employees as diplomats. So you think, right, that's sovereign. 
but they won't actually put anything in writing to prove that. And it's against the official secrets acts in that country to share any information about their holdings. So where do you go when you're trying to understand who they are and what they do? What is their classification? There should be always a flight to credit quality. The reality is there's thousands of very high quality funds that could be lent but they're all going to be unless rated or accessed via synthetics or accessed via CCP or access with the benefit of pledge, it's going to be relatively dramatically capital intensive to do business with them. That's it in a nutshell. That's why they should care. And that's why they should be aware of if they want to be in this business and they want access to the capital markets, understand what the other side of the trade looks like to the person you want to do it with and see if you can find a beneficial, mutually advantageous way to do that. Buy a pledge, CCP, get a rating, do synthetics. And I think what Mark says is absolutely spot on. But I think the point, therefore, is there's quite an important onus on people like yourself as an agent to actually bring those clients on this journey because they may not be thinking about it in this way. They may not have access to all those different ideas and flows because some of the biggest funds that we know are active on a bilateral basis in markets, they're big enough to look after themselves and, you know, they get it. But there's a whole swathe of clients Mm. who are very highly rated, but aren't necessarily as engaged in the capital markets on a daily basis. And I think, therefore, to take those clients on that journey is going to be really crucial. So people like yourselves and the other big agents have a really important role to play to bring in those clients along that learning curve mm. to understand what's happening and why and what the opportunities look like. Because the opportunities may still be there for them, but there may be different opportunities and they may look a bit different, but they could still be there. And I think that that's going to be a challenge over the next one, two, three years. Given the nature of the supply-demand equilibrium in the market at the moment, this is not a bad time for the industry to be having this problem. You know, we're a group that publishes the fact that there's 22 trillion available and twos on loan. Well, I've never been a big buyer of that number, sorry. But the simple fact is that it's not actually the difference between what you could lend and what you do lend. It's actually the criticality is that particular stock. It's like diamonds. If you've got one, it's valueless. And if you want one, it costs you tens of thousands of dollars. So the fact that you've got all this stuff. Asymmetry in the pricing is ridiculous. Stuff is not lent. It's probably not lent for a reason on many occasions. Nobody wants it. No. So I think that's a bit of a red herring, if I'm honest, Mark. But there is an opportunity for very sophisticated asset managers. And I always say this when I talk about this, being a pension fund, being an asset manager, being a mutual fund manager is a complicated business. It's not something I could do. And my specialist chosen subject is pig farming and securities finance for my sins. And they have to choose whether they want to know more about securities finance to facilitate capital efficient transactions. They have choices to make. And some of them will just think, I can't be bothered with it, quite Mm. frankly. I'm going to focus my energy on the solution that ensures that I can still do long-term derivative hedging, foreign exchange transactions, the capital optimized basis, and I'll get to stop lending later. So I'm not going to join a CCP and I I can't be asked with pledge and all that nonsense. So there is an opportunity for supply to shrink, but there are different routes. I mean, it's not lost on me that ESEC lending isn't a bank, for example. I'm sure it's not lost you and I'm sure it's not lost on your customers. It's not lost on me that I'm sick and tired of every CCP saying, lend with 2% RWA. 
I'm not so sure it's just that simple. I think that, you know, are there sponsoring agents? Are the indemnifications there? I think the fully loaded RWA cost is probably going to be higher than 2%. Does everybody want to have multiple CCPs? I'm not entirely sure. Does everybody want there to be one for American equities, another for European equities, some for fixing? I mean, how many CCPs do we need? I thought the clue was centralized. I mean, what's the point of having multiplied, centiplied? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just ridiculous. And then there's the concentration risk, the challenge of mutual funds being part of waterfalls and default funds. And also some of the very largest players who are in a marvelous position already. Why do they need to do anything? The world is coming their way. Yeah, Why don't they just sit on their hands and just see what happens? But I think that's an important point that the other way this will gradually play out is Everything that's happening will play into the hands of a smaller number of larger players, both banks, institutions, fund managers. Yeah. What could possibly go wrong? Well, exactly. We've seen it in North America recently with the way that certain institutions have just magically got bigger. I'm not sure that's necessarily in the best interest of the capital markets. Probably not. To see that level of concentration rising as an unintended consequence of them trying to mitigate risk. This is is probably a conversation for another podcast, but if you look at the impact of regulation over the last 10 years, regulators will tell you they want to see a widely diverse, broadly based banking market. Everything they've done has forced it to consolidate. So we've now got a smaller number of very large institutions. Okay, That's sort of what's happened and that continues to happen. So I'm not sure whether the regulators wanted that or they didn't want that. I think it's an important thing to reflect on because you've now got to a point where, as we saw when Credit Suisse disappeared on us, UBS has now moved to a point where it's too big to fail. Is that where we want to be? Well, 25 billion euros in the quarter is not too bad. No. So we've talked about this and you've sort of already given some of these answers, but I want to do it in a summary fashion. If the two of you were both beneficial owners, and let's just say that you're also clients of mine, because that just makes me feel good, but you're two beneficial owners and you can choose your entity type, describe who you are and describe what you think after hearing this, what you're going to do next. If I were a transparent, unrated sovereign wealth fund, I would seek a rating and I would share that with all interested capital markets counterparts that would facilitate Basel banks getting me to at least 20 and sometimes zero RWA. And I would rejoice in my popularity. If I were a mutual fund, part of a large asset management complex, I'd be working hard on understanding whether there is a pledge solution that's possible for me, whether the waterfall default funds and CCPs and cash management could work for me, and I'd definitely be considering encouraging my asset manager yeah. to get the data necessary to an agency to get me rated so I could be treated like all of the funds that they manage. If I was a public sector enterprise, I'd be really transparent with my borrowers as to how I feel I fit that characteristic, which is a critical one for the American banks and the international banks, but particularly the American banks, one that's very important. And I would be as, I suppose, confident and transparent as I can, so people could be reassured as to my creditworthiness and my willingness to be as sophisticated a counterpart as possible and try and play a role on the other side. We talk about the sort of weapons in the armory of the bows and the quiver of the borrowers. Sophisticated beneficial owners should be 
aware of where they stand on the issue of fill in the gaps, pledge, mm. swaps, CCPs, ratings, and those kind of things, and have a strategy yeah. about that. So, but most importantly, be confident enough to share information that will reassure your counterparts that you are structurally clear and understandable, and from a credit worthiness perspective, low risk. Yeah. So I think, Brooke, Mark's answered that question pretty well. So the point I would just add on that is that the way the framework is at the moment, the BAL 3.1 framework, it's standardizing a lot of things. It's not a pun on the actual thing, but many things have become standardized, right? So if I was your client, I would say to you, I'm serious about this business. How do we differentiate me to make me more attractive to borrowers? Now, many years ago, when I was on the desk at Deutsche looking to borrow securities, what we wanted to identify is who's our first call in the morning? Who's the person we go to first? Because yeah. they've got the sort of stuff we want. Yes. And they're the people that have either got the ones to stop you want or the type of supply you want from an RWA perspective. So if I was your client, Brooke, I'd say, what are the things that we can do, I can do to differentiate myself in an increasingly undifferentiated market? All the things Mark said are absolutely spot on. I could get a rating. I could use pledge. Yeah. I could get ready for central clearing because it's quite a bunch of stuff you need to do to that. If you differentiate yourself and you make yourself more attractive to borrowers, then you will be the first call in the morning and you will get those revenues before others. The other thing I might consider doing, and it's a, it's a great question, is in absentia being able to be like the most flexible or being able to do all of these things, I would seriously consider only lending specials because you then float above the sort of capital binding constraint it seems. And you may miss out on the liquidity trades and the GC trades, but you become less of a problem. You'd be open for business to do specials but, lending against great flexible yeah, collateral at low it, margins with long, you know, yes, I agree, be, be a great specials lender. But that's that quite a narrow way. view of what lending is, right? If you want to participate in furnishing liquidity, collateral transformation, because you need collateral for derivatives, you've got to... I bet you do that. But well, it goes against where lending, because for so many institutional investors, lending is now becoming this yeah. broader tool to do what Andy just said. Yeah. So Mark's recommendation just puts the brakes and sort of questions that whole broader philosophy that many. But, you, but I suppose what I'm saying, if you can't be capital efficient, do yeah. something where capital isn't a constraint. Yeah. Right. It, and that might be much more relevant advice for some. I don't know if you gave three or four examples of client types. You definitely were an overachiever because I think I asked for you to be one person, but it's okay. Multiple personalities. We like it. But you know, some of those entities that you just portrayed yourself as yeah. that doing specials only is probably going to be more realistic yes. for some than others, right? Yes. But I think the other thing that I've certainly noticed is this element of fiduciary responsibility that some of the asset management customers and asset managers feel they can't treat one fund because it's a big fund better than all the other funds because they're smaller. And also the pension plans and the sovereign wealth in particular do feel quite rightly at the importance of leadership and liquidity and setting examples. So yes, one can't always be as opportunistic as perhaps I was sort of glibly responding, but I do welcome the collegiate leadership role that some of the very largest sovereign wealths and pension plans, public pension plans in particular, lead. They aren't obliged to do that, but they're doing the right thing. No, no, for asset managers, they have a fiduciary responsibility to treat all funds for equivalent outcomes. That's much more pressure. No, I think so. And But also, I think 
I've taken the view for some time, there's almost an altruistic view that those people in the market need to support that market. If you benefit from deep liquid markets where you buy and sell securities, then you can't be that firm that says, I'm not going to lend securities. By that very decision, you potentially made that market less liquid and more expensive. I get it. I mean, the free rider is always a major yeah. problem in all walks of life. But I think that becomes more important when you get into these sorts of realms. Now, clearly doesn't necessarily resonate with everyone. But I think that going forward, there needs to be particularly larger institutions who have more of an opportunity to move the dial either together or separately. The more battle ready they are for all eventualities, yes. the more they're going to get out of this market. And the more the market's going to get out of them because it's a two-way street. Yes. And I think the other thing is we sort of touched on one thing, this idea of most banks will kind of say, I have a friend who has a capital problem. They've all got a capital problem. Beneficial owners, you can really help them all. They're all, even the largest banks in America, having a 20% capital squeeze as estimated by the recent interpretation. So it matters to them all. And as good business people, they are trying to optimize and manage as best they can for the benefit of their and business, just, for their shareholders, et cetera, et cetera. If I was a large fund about to have a meeting with my relationship bank, the first question is, so tell me, what are we doing about bonds? What's the implication for me, my business, you, your business? Because at the end of the day... What do you say when they say, oh, it doesn't really matter. We've got the loads of capital. I say, I don't believe you. Well, exactly. That's what's <laughs> going to happen. I have a friend that's got... I don't, I don't believe you. And prove to me that it doesn't because they, they can't, because everyone's got this challenge. And I think that the grown-ups in the room will acknowledge there's a problem, acknowledge that we need to work together with all our clients to get us to where we need to get to. It's very important that everybody gets the opportunity to take something off the table, yeah. their appropriate, whatever it is. So we can't expect people to do things for free or at suicidal rates. So in a pragmatic, open way, got to work on these challenges together. And large institutional investors have this great opportunity to sit down with their banks and go, okay, what's going on on Bob? Tell us. Because they should have a very interesting story to tell you because those clients will be at the heart of their franchise. Maybe the best way to assess a bank's capital pressure and understanding is to ask them to price business, which you know to be capital intensive, and just to see how that changes as you go out through 24, 25, 26 be interesting to see because then you'll get a true answer because they'll be pricing it as appropriately maybe the other thing to say and it's really fascinating to me the beneficial owners shouldn't feel that they're that far behind the desks the businesses at banks do not live and breathe regulatory capital regulations as they're pending particularly if they're being phased in in stages over multiple years and there's a transition period the entire industry is going to learn and adapt and I think it's encouraging that the conversation is already quite loud and multifaceted now that there are multiple solutions. Yeah. And I think I'm confident that the industry will work out solutions that will work, maintain liquidity, keep the business buoyant. And um, uh, I agree, Mark. You know, and I, I think, think that, that, that is, maybe it's nice to end on a positive. Right. No, I agree that I think in three to five years time, if we were to have this conversation again, we go, OK, well, that was that then. We've done it. No, but, but there'd be Basel five. No, no, but... All of the things that we were worried about will have been dealt with because we shouldn't underestimate the power of the organizations that you work with and I represent in terms of innovation, creativity, and just sheer willpower to make things happen. And adding that value to those underlying clients, as well as the bank's own shareholders, continues to be something they all do pretty well. Yeah. And I think that we'll look back on this in three to five years time and go, okay, well, that was interesting, but we all got through it because I think we will.
And in that vein, I really hope that the solution comes from legal, transparent ratings, CCPs, rather than sort of financing chicanery. Because I think the regulators won't no. want to see that. And there's Basel Five will come after them hard on that. If that's the way that they get around this, I don't think that's no. going to be the solution that is the wholesale solution. There will always be sophisticated financial engineering at the edges of things, but it cannot be the solution the entire industry depends no. upon. And it mustn't be. It mustn't be. No, it can't be. It won't be. We think it's bad enough trying to explain what a CCP waterfall fund would look like, trying to explain some of the derivatives transactions to the pensioners. Well, I now know that I need to both be battle ready myself and <laughs> to prepare my clients to be battle ready as well. So thank you for that. Listeners, this has been an amazing conversation. It's been a long one. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. Mark, Andy, I want to thank you. I feel like there are many more conversations that we could have. So maybe if Andy is willing, or maybe Mark, we should make you go to Andy's place the next time. And no, nope, no, nope, okay. So. Happy to do so. <laughs> well, I've we'll got see. A clean bill of health. I can't go anywhere. Yeah, you could run there. <laughs> maybe let's not. not. Let's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, good. Well, thank you both. I really do appreciate you taking so much time. This is super helpful. And it'd be good to check back in on this over the course of time. We'll have to see what that time horizon feels like. But I look forward to more conversation in the future. So thanks again. You're very welcome. Be afraid. Be very afraid. <laughs> Brooke, absolute pleasure. And many thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes. Thank you both. All right. Thanks, listeners. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.